Good morning, Transit Church. We are in our series in John, and we are talking about believing in Jesus. It's, a, it's really important to know what we believe, whom we believe in, and what that looks like. And the book of John really lays it out for us, but it also kindles in us the actual belief. So it doesn't just prescribe to us and describe to us belief in Jesus but it comes at us and is actually the wood for the fire of believing who Jesus is and ultimately that he saves us, that he calls us to himself and that he redeems us and, and purchases us and cleanses us from our sin and ultimately brings us into union with him. And, and so we're going to be in John chapter 7 today. If, if you need a Bible, we've got Bibles along the middle of the aisles here. And um, let's go ahead and pray this morning together. Holy Spirit, you're resting upon Jesus. After Jesus was baptized, you came and you descended like a dove and you rested upon him and you remained. And we have reason to believe that you're still resting upon Jesus. And right before Jesus left, he told us that you would come upon us and that we would be your witnesses. And we see a lot of the world right now. And we've become a lot like the world. And we want to see Jesus and become like Jesus. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come plunge us into the revelation of Jesus and cause us to believe we can't do it on our own. We need idols broken today. We need refocusing today. We need the clarity of the passion of Jesus for us, that he didn't just stand in heaven and command us to do stuff. He came and laid down his life that we might know him. And he's not here right now, so we can't see him, but you've given us his words and you're resting upon us, and you're resting upon him. So I pray today that you would introduce us in a powerful way, and that worldliness would fall off of our hearts, and that you would sanctify us and give us a focus that is solely set on Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. You only receive eternal life if you believe in Jesus. The Bible does not give us the option of functional pluralism. Meaning, oh yeah, I ascend to the idea that Jesus is God, that he is Lord, that he came, died for my sins. But I also believe in all these other things that bear more weight on my mind, bear more weight on my heart, bear more weight on my affections, bear more weight on my soul, and I end up serving those masters delighting in those things, and ultimately inheriting the life that they're condemned to by Jesus. Jesus came that he would be solely believed, solely trusted in, and that we might have the life that only he gives. And that's what John chapter 7 is about, specifically the verses that we're going through. 1 through 24, we're going to see that 
good works for Jesus, having an agenda for Jesus is not belief in Jesus. We're going to see that observing the law to all ends, to at every cost, is not meriting of eternal life, but only believing in Jesus. So we need an understanding of Jesus as the Bible describes him to be. Where else do we get this? I mean, we need this. While the world's saying, this is who Jesus is, this is what Christians should be, we want to compress you into your little box. We say, man, we got an explosive, resurrected Jesus here. We want to believe this Jesus. So this is where we go, and this is why we're in a series in the book of John, because it's not just moral guidance for our lives that we can rehearse and remember. What a good sermon, brother. I think I'll stow that away in my cognitive functions. But really, we get to see truth in the Word. That's why we're doing this. And so we're just going to jump into John chapter 7, and I've got two questions, knowing that the gospel of John is about believing. I'm coming at this text asking, what is the nature of salvific belief? So there's beliefs. Everyone's got beliefs in Jesus. He's a prophet. He's irrelevant. He does good stuff. He might, you know, give us treasures, whatever. But what does it mean to have salvific belief? Meaning, I will be saved when I believe in Jesus this way. What does that look like? Not believing as the world says to believe. Not determining by ourselves what salvific belief is, but going to him to say, what do you say belief in you is that will give me eternal life? And who or what is the object of salvific belief? Obviously, shown you my hand, Jesus is, because that's what the Bible says. All right, so this is where we're going. John chapter 6, verse 27, a little bit of context as to what Jesus has already said about himself. He says, do not work for the food that perishes. So we're thinking, okay, because he's already fed 5,000 people, so right, the people are coming at him like, Man, you're, you're giving us the stuff we need. Keep it coming. You're the man. We'll keep applauding you. We want to make you king because you gave us food and fish. It's like, okay. So, but Jesus is saying, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts to eternal life. So we got to stop and think, what is that food which the Son of Man will give to you? So we know that Jesus is the Son of Man. And the Jews would know that because Isaiah prophesies of the Son of Man, yet they're not going to pick up that he's the Messiah. But Jesus is going to give them eternal life. And then we will discover that as Jesus gives us, his disciples, his brothers, the people himself, that he is giving people eternal life. So the only way to have eternal life is to have Jesus. And he gives himself to us freely. So we pick up in John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. We want to make you king, and now we want to kill you. And I just keep thinking back to my big fat Greek wedding. Hey, Ian, we're going to kill you. 
Like, it's unmerited. I haven't done anything. But it's because the Jews were constantly subjecting Jesus to their will and not submitting to him and his will. Verse 2, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. We could read into that, but if you want to look more into that, I'll give you the reference. Leviticus 23, 33 through 44 lays out what the Feast of Booths is. It's a seven-day feast. They'd go into the booths, and basically um, it was a time of consecration to God where they would stop from work. It was like an extended Sabbath. And there's a whole list of um, feasts that God had given to his people And ultimately, during this time, what we're going to see is they're observing the law, but they're missing the fulfillment of the law. So that's the context that we're into. But our story in here really picks up in verse 3. So his brother said to him, Leave here, Jesus, and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. So right there, we we get a picture of their incentive Jesus, we've seen you do good works. Why don't you go flaunt that, put that on display, because we think more people need to see what you're doing. So already, they're coming at Jesus with an agenda. And they say, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. We just want to assume you want to be known openly because you're the man. You're doing stuff. And we think, man... That if, if, if you're going to actually get some followers, we think you've got to market yourself, bro. You need a hashtag. You need some stuff. You need some people working for you that know what they're doing. So he, he's like, man. So, so then it says, um, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. So they're basically saying, okay, Jesus, the test of whether or not you can really produce is by the amount of people you're showing yourself to. So keep making bread. We're going to start setting up a bread shop over here. Uh, You're good at carpentry, right? Maybe you can multiply some chairs, some Sabbath dining tables, if they even had those back then. We don't know. So they're, they're given this plan for Jesus. And then John says in verse 5, For not even his brothers believed in him. What do you mean his brothers didn't believe in him? They think he's doing great stuff, and they want to push that great stuff into the public so that more people can believe on that platform of how they're believing in him. And John's saying, that's not belief. You believe in yourselves. You believe in your agenda for Jesus, and you're missing Jesus altogether. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. (laughs) The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So here's, I I did a little bit of digging deep because I noticed in verse 4, His brothers want him to do works. And in verse 7, 
Jesus says, I testify about certain works. So in verse 4, it says, no one works, and the Greek word is paeo, to make or to produce or to do well. So no one paeo in secret if he seeks to be known openly. Man, no one cultivates this thing. No one builds their kingdom. No one start, you know, no one begins a startup company if he's chilling over here, not doing anything, not making himself known to the world. Come on, Jesus, get your game together, bro. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then in verse seven, Jesus says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about its works. But the word here is Aragon, which means undertaking enterprise or business employment. And he's testifying that those things are evil. So they're saying, do your works. And Jesus is saying, the undertaking of this business employment is inherently wicked. But that doesn't necessarily indict Jesus' brothers, does it? They're saying no one makes a product and keep it secret. Jesus says the world doesn't hate you, but it hates me because I testify that it's business undertaking is evil. So one, the brothers were not serving Jesus. They were serving themselves. And two, their motives were to make much of themselves by flaunting Jesus. The very calibration being centered on learning where center is of the unction of the world the very center that produces the outflow of its works is evil because it is not centered on Christ. Any religion, any agenda that is not centered on the person of Jesus is evil. But anything that is centered on Jesus, that rejoices in who Jesus is, that rejoices in the truth of who he says he is, will inherit eternal life. Is part of the thing that is redemptively and eternally secure. Jesus is not a means to an end. He will not be prostituted to the end of giving us what we want. He will be wanted. Jesus did not come in your life and my life to show up as a genie and start producing according to our worldly agenda. He came to redeem us from our agenda. He came to redeem us from our wicked souls. He came to redeem us from the outflow of who we are. He came to give us a new nature. And he came to redeem us and birth us and baptize us into his nature that now the outflow of our lives might not be as the world, but they might be as him looking to him saying, man, you want to lay down your life and give it up? We're going to lay down our lives and give it up that we might gain you and not the world. And so he's exposing and John's exposing because Jesus' words don't necessarily indict his brothers yet. Or do they? But John makes it plain in verse 5. For not even his brothers believed. In other words, the works of the world 
are what his brothers are subjected to. His brothers are of the worldly mindset, not the Jesus mindset, and they do not believe. Even though they're hyped about Jesus, they don't believe. They've got him serving their agenda, and they're missing his. Not even Jesus' brothers wanted Jesus for Jesus. The difference between worldliness and belief is the disposition of the world is, well, the disposition of the world is not just outside the church. Okay? We've got nominal belief in every church where we think we believe, and yet the functions of our soul do not say, Jesus is the objective truth. Everything's calibrated around him. But rather, maybe we see him and we're subjecting him to this other treasure we've got over here that's worldliness. Worldliness is very present in the church. Worldliness is a sole disposition of being led by the gravity of the world and its agenda, which is opposed to Jesus. You cannot serve two masters Church, us, bride, be freed from unbelief. What John's getting at here is that everything, even if it's a church function, even if it's a religious function, even if it's a cultural function, even if it seems like a good thing, if it's not centered on Jesus, it's not eternal. It doesn't merit life, and not only that, but you miss completely the center of the universe. And so it leads me to think there's a temptation in the church, a disposition called the prosperity gospel, and it is the antinomy, it's the opposite, it's against the biblical gospel. While the prosperity gospel says You should take the best opportunity to make your name great. The gospel says you are sought after by the greatest king. You couldn't seek something better than the king who's seeking you. So turn around and be sought. Right? The gospel says you are sought after by the greatest king who gave up his greatness to stoop down and make you great. You can't make yourself great and you certainly can't lead Jesus into your agenda to make yourself great. He already came to say, I want to make you great by you looking at him and knowing him and saying, isn't he wonderful? Isn't he greater than the world? Can't my soul fully delight in him? I mean, it ends with this alcohol. It ends with these promotions. I always want a new promotion. I remember after I graduated college, living in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and I was like, okay, so I could either join the army or work for Taco Bell. Um, I can't do either of those. So... You know, my, my, my mindset was, okay, I need to make $20,000 to survive here if I can find that somewhere. 
And then I move up to DC and I'm like, okay, I need like $60,000 to survive here. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, I don't have a family. I don't even need a car. I can use the metro. I still need $60,000 to survive here. I'm like, all right, so we got Uber, we got bike share, we got like, I'm like budgeting and all that, you know, like, all right, cool. <laughs> so, so there's a difference, but even in my own soul, I started adjusting, telling God how much I needed and what I really needed was him. Right? Because he's the one that fills my soul. He's the one that provides I started realizing after three and a half months of being here without a job, started applying to like pot belly, not telling anyone. Stop tweeting about my job searches then, you know. I'm like, yeah, now I'm applying to pot belly. Hashtag awesome, crushing it, winning the world. I'm dope. And started to realize though that as I pressed into Jesus, he gave me everything. And here's the thing. Here's what the world didn't get is that they were content with the hand of God and they missed the heart of God, and they let God stiff-arm them by constantly going here, not here. But when you get up in Jesus and say, I want to love Jesus for Jesus, he gives you everything you need because he is everything you need, and because he loves you, he will provide for you. And if you're in a place of desperation and poverty, God has put you in a position where you can see him more clearly than your context. And you have everything you need. The prosperity gospel says, gain earthly riches to show God's power. The gospel says, Jesus is the greatest treasure. And our joy in him leads us to letting go of earthly goods as the things that we trust. There's no mingling here. The gospel says, lay down your life that you might gain Christ. And as we see who Christ is that we're gaining, that weight starts to drag us into eternal absoluteness. But if we're constantly going after the things of the world and I need this and I need that, we can't have both Jesus and the world ever. They're going opposite directions. They'll pull our hearts totally different ways. And you have one or you have the other. And the gospel says, have Jesus. Because he's going to last forever. So in Matthew 6, 21, when it says, for there your tr- treasure is, there your, or, there your heart will be also. Or maybe it's where your heart is. Whatever the case, your heart and your treasure are in, your, in the same place. And, you know, a lot of preachers would be like, man, that's money. And maybe it is for that context. But it also means you don't have to treasure money. You can treasure Jesus. And here's the truth. If your treasure is eternally secure, your heart's eternally secure. So if the object of your, of your heart's affection is going to fall when Jesus comes back, you're going to fall when Jesus comes back. If the object that your heart is resting on is eternally secure and it is Jesus, then when Jesus comes back and he reigns for eternity, your heart's in a very, very secure place. And so the message is now, we don't know when the king's coming back. We don't know when he decides. There were 10 virgins and he gave them all oil, but only five of them took enough oil. 
So that in the middle of the night, when the bridegroom shows up and starts calling these people, only five of them were prepared to meet the king, to go to the wedding, to be ready for the one they were expecting. So hear my voice. Jesus is coming and he's poking at the disposition of our hearts and says, this matters, bride. This matters. And if it matters that much to him, then maybe we should allow it to weigh on us in such a way that we say, I don't want the world, I don't need the world, because I want Jesus. And here's the thing, we get tricked up. We're like, man, is that legalistic? Here's what's legalistic, is getting rid of the world without wanting Jesus. This is a call to want Jesus and to get rid of the world. Unbelief manifests when we try to go to Jesus to give him our will and not to receive his. That's what the brothers were doing. So we're going to Jesus saying, I want your will. Here's Jesus' will. Have Jesus. Jesus is, Jesus' will is that you would receive him. Jesus' will is that you would receive him. Just humbly, earnestly. He was born in a manger. Now here's the thing. God pursues us. In John 7, verses 16 through 18, so Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Here's how you know whether or not you're seeking God's will, by whether or not you're seeking Jesus. Because the Father's will is so wrapped up, it's concentrated in the person of Jesus. If you're pursuing Jesus more than the world, you're submitted to the will of God. So if you knew the Father, you would know where Jesus' teachings come from because Jesus is saying, look, my teachings don't come from me. (laughs) They come from the Father, but the teachings of the Father are about Jesus, which makes me think God has not withheld grace from the Jews and people of the Old Covenant. Sometimes we think, man, God, you know, had wrath towards, or, or the Old Covenant in general is wrath, Ten Commandments, wrath. Everything wrath. It was simply that the people of the Old Covenant did not always receive grace. And so grace came to them. Sometimes we have this picture that God was all rules and wrath, but let's retrace. He gave a perfect man a perfect wife and said, make babies. They weren't like, oh dang, the wrath of God. When they sinned, he didn't kill them right? He sent them on their way. He didn't smite them. He did crush the Tower of Babel, Sodom, and everyone but Noah, but he rescued those who would believe in him. I want to spare you. Believe me. Trust me. And they did. Sometimes it took 50 years of belief, but God spared them. He gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob great prosperity and spoke to them clearly in times of turmoil. I am the God. I am your God. 
Your belief is now credited as righteousness. Then he goes through the generations. I'm the God of your fathers. He shows up. He delivers them. Jacob, dude, he was messed up a little bit. But God came and met him in grace. So all along, God's not like, hey, rules, okay, I guess I gotta save you now. He's like, I'm pursuing you. Respond to me, respond to me. And they mess up, they mess up. And so God said, okay, I'm not just gonna prophesy at you. I'm not just gonna give you a law. I'm not just gonna bomb the earth. I'm coming to you. I'm coming to rescue you. I'm coming to redeem you that you might know me, the object of eternity, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And oh, he is intrinsically gracious. He doesn't just demand worship. He comes and gets on his knees. I want to read to you something from the book of Jeremiah. I didn't print it out, but, you know, last week, Jeff preached a phenomenal word where I sat in my seat and trembled. And it's because he just, the Holy Spirit came and anointed the word of God and spoke to hearts exactly where I was. And um, so I'm just, Holy Spirit, come and anoint your word. In these last few minutes, God, come, anoint your word. Anoint your people, anoint our hearts to believe you. We can't do it. Holy Spirit, baptize us into the revelation of Jesus. Right now we ask that we might believe. And in Jeremiah, God speaks through his prophet, to the old covenant people, and he says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Sometimes we think, man, the fear of God drives us away from him. Man, the fear of God drives us to him. And, and it is grace. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. And church, we got to believe that God wants to do you good, but it's not the kind of good that the world offers you. It's not the kind of good that the brothers were after for Jesus. It's the kind of good that you would have God, that you would have the benefits of knowing God and being in relationship with God. It's the kind of benefits where you would know his mercy knowing that you did not earn or deserve relationship with him, but he was so tenacious about you and in love with you that he came after you. Cultivate belief, God, in our hearts. God always wanted to give them himself. His one condition was the obedience of faith. God has been calling us out since the beginning. Do not harden your hearts. Trust me. Believe me. And we haven't obeyed. The people of the Old Testament did not always believe and obey. The, his disciples did not always believe and obey. But God, being rich in mercy, and here's the gospel, he came to them to rescue, to redeem. When we wouldn't climb the ladder to relationship with him, he condescended and came to us to pick us out of where we were and bring us to himself and where he is eternally secure to put in plain sight the object of salvation and now the world's accountable 
that Jesus came to the earth. And some people are like, man, I don't believe anything I can't see. I'm like, well, do you believe the Holocaust happened? Like, how, how real do we want to get with this? See, people are picking and choosing what they don't want to believe. And Jesus has made himself known. And we got to believe it. We got to herald it. We got to spread it. This is urgent. This is real. And man, our hearts were made for Jesus to believe in him, to herald him, to love him holistically, not just in treasuring him, but sharing our treasure with him that we might treasure him even more. And so he was willing to kill his own son that you and I might live because our sin was placed upon him. That's the gospel, is that Jesus took our sin and put it on himself. The Father put our sin on Jesus and crushed him for it. His wrath fully poured out. And, and now he puts Jesus before us and he says, whoever believes on him will get the righteousness that Jesus has. So it's this great exchange. Let, let me move forward. John 7, 22 through 24. Moses gave you circumcision. This is still Jesus talking. He's, he's now, he did go up to the feast, right? And he's teaching. And there's leaders, there's Jewish leaders mad at him. And Jesus says, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, think about that. Think about that. We're going to, we're trying to observe the Sabbath, but we got this law here and it's his, it's his day to get circumcised. It's painful for everybody. Okay. And they're going out of their way to do this. If, but Jesus says, if on the Sabbath man receives circumcision, can't even say that word, so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. In other words, Jesus came in mercy and grace. And they're like, God, obey the law of God. And they're missing the fulfillment of the law of God right before their very eyes. We got to obey God. No, you're not obeying God. You're missing God. And here they are condemning God. And so Jesus is going into this interaction saying, here's the thing. Obeying the law is not believing in God when God's standing in front of you saying, believe in me. And sometimes we approach God like that, don't we? Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Psalm 51, 12. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He doesn't say, Lord, make me pure, make me clean, make me... Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Renew a right spirit within me. In other words, what was broken was, I wasn't having joy in you. I took joy in this. And in order to withdraw from this worldly joy, I need a greater joy in Jesus. And so that's what his prayer was, and that's what the gospel is. That God doesn't just take us out from under the law. He gives us Jesus. The gospel is that God gave us Jesus to set us free from our sin and to make us clean. 
The greatest sin is in trying to avoid sin without running to Jesus. Don't make yourself clean. You can't do it. Help my unbelief. The Jews were operating out of unbelief. They didn't believe in the character of God. They just wanted to impress God. Belief in Jesus births deeper love for Jesus. You want to test your belief in Jesus? How much do you love him? Do you love him more than you love the things of this world? Deeper freedom to obey and please God. So as you believe in him, you will please him. You will obey him. You will see his, the, the roots of his love start to burrow in your heart. It will produce brokenness and worship, leaving behind the old and clinging to Jesus. But unbelief births an agenda for Jesus a plan for moral growth apart from Jesus. So let's get practical here. Romans, Paul writes out how we receive the righteousness of God and through the object of Jesus Christ who is given to us. Romans three twenty one through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So you got the law, you got the prophets, and Jesus comes separate from those. But he's going to fulfill. And the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So, from verse 21 we can gather, God's righteousness came apart from the law. The law and the prophets say, yeah, that's Jesus. All along, the Old Testament is saying, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. You're going to miss it if you don't see Jesus. That's why I read Jeremiah. He's the fulfillment of those things. When Jesus shows up, the reflection disappears and we are able to see clearly. <laughs> He's coming back. Preaching's going to fade. The word of God's going to be upheld and we're just going to see Jesus. Okay? Prophets will be taken from the earth. Evangelists taken from the earth. Those heralding the word and the people of the earth are going to say, that's the king. He'll be in plain sight. We'll see him more clearly than the Sears Tower, more clearly than all the glamour in Las Vegas and New York City and all the famous people. Jesus. And the world will marvel or tremble. It will be him and him alone. And everything's bearing witness to him. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for those who believe. For there is no distinction. This is marvelous. Jesus' righteousness comes upon us when we believe in Jesus. You want to receive the righteousness that God has for you? Believe in the righteousness of God in the person of Jesus. When you say, that's Jesus, you're just fixed there. You're becoming like Jesus. You become like what you behold. If you're beholding the world, oh wow, this is this is amazing. I can show I think I've sang that song before. That's dangerous. Um not Aladdin right now. Let's get off from that. But you're looking at that and you're becoming like it. So God gives you Jesus that you might become like Jesus. That's what belief is. There's no distinction. I love that. You might be a CEO you might be cleaning toilets. You might be making $20,000. You might be making $20 million. And Jesus says, my grace is for you. That's amazing. There's no other gift like that. Because we didn't earn it. 
We didn't deserve it. He just gives it. A sign of faith is that you are overwhelmed that he would give you that gift. There's an infatuation aspect. If we're infatuated with the world, there's no room to be enthralled with Jesus. Verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's you, that's me. Do you see how this ties in with unbelief and belief? It's because the word of God is shattering our ability to believe in ourselves that we might furiously look and he is putting forward Jesus. That we might say, we can't believe here, gotta believe there. That's what the Bible's about. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus. Jesus died to redeem us. This is grace. This is grace. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's the, he is the only place to look. It's the only place where we can say that's Christian belief is upon Jesus. Last two verses. I'm almost done here. I pray that we would let this seep into our hearts. Whom God put forward as a propitiation, meaning that exchange. Joe and Abby, you can come up and, and play. We're almost done here. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. If you want the great exchange, this is, this is the gospel. If you want the great exchange of God taking your sin upon himself and you taking upon yourself the righteousness of God in Jesus, you need to believe in Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus to be received by faith, to say, I need that, I need that, I want that. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now hear me, church, those that are in Jesus, Jesus clearly sees all your sin. He's gazing at you. He's not turning his face away like he did to the sun. He is looking at you. He sees right through the facade. He sees right through all the pretense. He sees right through all the things that you've condemned yourself with. Ha! He sees the woman that was caught in adultery and that's been in adultery. He saw the woman at the well and he said, I'm for you. There's no distinction. He obliterates that which we claim to have, that sin that's been so real for us and he sets us free. And he's calling us to believe in him, to say, yeah, I need that kind of God that would meet me in that place of brokenness, of drowning in my sin, of drowning in my unbelief. Or how about this? Drowning in my comfort, in my wealth, in my BMW. Oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, if you got a BMW, praise God, man. Praise God. Serve God with that thing. You could Uber. Here's the thing. God delivers us from our worldliness. He delivers us from our insignificance. He gives us himself. And verse 26, that he might be both just and the justifier of those who have faith. He is just 
because he did pour out his wrath. He did condemn unbelief. Unbelief deserves hell. Not believing in Jesus means eternal separation from God. And all that condemnation was heaped on Jesus for us. All that unbelief that we've discovered was heaped on Jesus for us. And that made God just that he said, I can't, I can't look away from that. I've got to deal with that. And yet he justified us by faith. We just went through justification by faith. By faith alone. By grace alone. Through faith alone. It is grace. And so Jesus, we stand before you now. Lord, we want to believe we want to get at the heart of belief. We want to get at the heart of Jesus. And we receive your righteousness. God, I pray you would stir up faith. Holy Spirit, come now. Reveal Jesus to us. Give us faith in him. God, I pray that you would make the treasures of the world seem so faint and futile to us. But God, that we would trust you and know, God, that you love us, that you came after us, we pray that we would believe in you. In Jesus' name, amen.